Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, people, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin, broadcasting from my home office in Westchester County, New York. Currently, more than 2.7 million children in the United States have an incarcerated parent. That's one in 28 children. The impact of this kind of separation can, needless to say, be devastating. For children who experience parents being taken away, they're at serious risk of low self-esteem, impaired achievement, impaired motivation, and poor peer relations, on top of having to contend with feelings like anxiety, shame, and grief. Such young people, as they enter their teen years, are at high risk of delinquency, drug addiction, and gang involvement. Today's guest, Antoine Patton, aims to address that. As founder and executive director of the Photo Patch Foundation, he works to facilitate sustained communication between children and their incarcerated parents, working around the numerous challenges of expensive phone calls and grueling visits, not to mention the rigorous censorship to which written letters and physical photos are typically subject to. Photopatch instead utilizes a digital platform and an app through which children can write letters and send photos to their incarcerated parents on a consistent basis. An app that was developed by his teenage daughter, Jayana, who goes by JJ. Antoine authored From Cages to Stages, How STEM Changed My Life, which was published in 2018, He's also an Echoing Green 2019 Black Male Achievement Fellow for his work with the Photo Patch Foundation. Antoine, welcome to Brand on Purpose. And it's great to see you as well. Even though nobody else can see you, we can see each other. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. (laughs) Hopefully I didn't say anything wrong in the intro. I mean, Jayana. I know you tried really. You did good. I think you said Jayana. Jayana. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Jayana. And she goes by JJ, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. That's cute. How old is JJ today? She's 15 now. Oh, wow. All right. So she's the real deal. She's pushing back on you, right? <laughs> she's pushing forward. She's the leader of the house. It's amazing what she's doing. She's creating schedules for herself, for her younger brother. And she's really ahead of her time. It's amazing to watch her grow. You know, <laughs> you think back to, I mean, you're a young guy, but I think back to my teen years and I think teenagers today are so much more developed and mature for all sorts of reasons, but they just have their shit together more than I think I did. I was a child. <laughs> for a long time. Yeah, I feel you. I was the same way. I'm looking at my kids and I'm just like, what is it? Really, like, especially girls. I think something about girls today, they always been a little bit ahead of boys for sure, but I am seeing a different level of maturity from a lot of young ladies. Yeah. Kids are blessings. And I think that we could all agree on that for sure. So you yourself were incarcerated. You had JJ. Talk a little bit about, obviously, that was the inspiration for, among other things, the creation of Photo Patch Foundation. Let's talk a little bit about the founding and what that was like and what it was like also being away from your daughter and communicating with her and, and how you feel like so many others are in similar situations and how you could actually impact this and make a positive change. Yeah. Photo Patch came out of a deep need, a deep necessity. As I was going through a big transformation in my life, at the time, I thought of photo patch. I was serving eight years in prison. I had went to a maximum security prison, and then I went to a medium security prison. And all along the way, I was in this college program. So I had access to like computers, no internet, but was still able to invest into myself education-wise. Yeah, photo patch was this idea coming out of, I really wanted to communicate more with my daughter. She was three years old when I went to prison in 2008 for criminal possession of a weapon. It was tough going to prison for one, just for myself, being 20 years old. You were only 20? Yeah, I was only 20 when I went to prison. Oh, God. A 20-year-old 
is a child. I mean, I have a 19 year old and I get it. Technically you're an adult, but I mean, developmentally and maturity wise, we want to be so bad at that age, but you're not. Yeah. You're you're not. not. Right. I'm more of an advocate now of like, Hey, it's no rush to get out your parents' house at 21. If you think about all the bills that you pick up just outside of lights and gas, when you start thinking about transportation, Uber, and buying your own little things that you really like, makeup, nails, clothes, things add up. So I moved out of my own house. I mean, out of my mother's house at 17. So I really thought I was grown <laughs> at 19, 20. So yeah, it just led to me making a lot of bad decisions. I thought I was rushing. I was in the streets. I had a job. I was in college, but I also was like trying to make more money from what we call hustling in the streets, selling drugs. I had a daughter at a really young age. She was born. I was 17 years old. Her mom was 17 years old. So we were really just like babies having babies, trying to figure it out. And three years later, I find myself in this position of going to prison for having a gun, coming from Buffalo, New York, one of the hardest cities to grow in in the nation. It's the third poorest city in the nation right now. It's a lot. It's a lot of despair, poverty, crime, crooked politicians, you name it. (laughs) So it's just kind of like a product of that environment led to me going to prison for eight years. While in prison, like I was devastated because I really had no idea what I wanted to do with my future. I loved sports growing up, but it never really went anywhere. So I just found myself being more idle and just living a basic life more than anything. So not really having any ambition. So going to prison for me, like it wasn't prison that really helped me, what I say, unlock my higher self. It was more so getting some solitude, getting away from that old environment and being able to dive into who I really am, what my likes really are, instead of just peer pressure taking over my mindset or being led the wrong way. So I'm now a big advocate of get some you time. Everybody needs me time, solitude to be able to think, go within. And some things that really helped me get better at that was like, I started studying Eastern spirituality and I got into meditation and yoga. It just was like, talk about enlightenment. I just really started connecting these different dots in my life, started being more grateful for things in my life. So even while I was serving this eight years in prison, I'm in this like real positive, vibrant state of mind. And I think that just attracted certain things. I was able to get into this college program, which was really exclusive and hard thing to do. Out of 3,000 people in this prison, Elmira Correctional Facility, only 15 people were accepted. So we had to like apply, write five page paper in like 20 minutes. It was like ridiculous, but they accepted 15 people. And to be one of those 15 people, it was like an honor. It was a real big thing. I was able to go and experience college every night, Monday through Friday, while inside of a prison. So that was an unlocking experience. I was able to study philosophy, study poetry. I went into mathematics. I never was really big into math, but I went into calculus, probability theory, complex analysis. I really had opportunity to just like explore. I'm sure you don't want to relive those days in prison, but it sounds to me, and it's amazing to hear that you made the best out of a really terrible situation. And it could have gone very, very wrong. How did you find kind of the internal motivation and the strength to stay positive and focused and turn it around like that in an environment where it's very easy to go the other way and not necessarily be positive and not continue to develop yourself and focus on self-care? The key word that I heard from you was like the motivation. And my biggest motivation was my daughter. It was JJ. She was three years old when I went to prison. I didn't see her again until she was six because of when I went to prison, it was so far away. It was three hours away from 
Buffalo, New York. So getting a prison visit was really hard. She was always my motivation. I was like, whoa, me sitting in prison here is harming her. It's harming her mother, making things harder on them because now there's one less person to help put food on the table or make sure she can make it to a field trip in school or get that dress for a party. So I was aware of my impact on my family's life. So that was like really early on was my motivation of like, how do I become a better person? I was seeking redemption. I really wanted to come home from prison. People feel like, okay, yes, you made us look bad by going to prison because that's how I felt like, you know what? I stained the family name. Why did I do that? So I had this regret and I just really worked hard to try to get in a better light in my family eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, the prison is far away. It's hard to communicate. At what point were you like, there's got to be a better way for people like me to be able to communicate with their loved ones, especially their children, where it's uncensored, less filtered, as intimate as possible, right? Yeah. I remember it like it was yesterday, actually. So I was reading this article in the USA Today. It was talking about this mobile app explosion. It was 2010. And the first iPhone had just came out two or three years earlier. So I was missing this whole wave of like what was happening in tech with the smartphone and apps on your phone. I didn't know any of that. I missed it. I went to prison. I was barely texting and the cricket phones had snake on it. That was the only game you get. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have no experience in tech or coding or anything like that. So when I'm reading this article about the mobile app explosion, I get really interested because they started going into the financials of it too, talking about how these app developers are making millions and billions of dollars off of either sales or IPOs and acquisitions. And I'm like, somebody's selling these apps for a dollar and becoming millionaires and billionaires. And I risked my life on these corners trying to sell $5 or $10 or $100 packages. This looks like a way better avenue. So I feel like at that moment, I had finally started seeing a path for me financially because I didn't have that before. I was deep in education. I was deep in meditation, spirituality, but I didn't know what I was going to do to provide for my family. So that article in the USA Today just really stood out to me because I'm seeing how much money these people are making. And this thing about tech sounded really interesting. But the key part was you need to learn how to code in order to build these apps. Me still being a little, I guess, not believing in myself. Two months prior to that, I turned down a course for coding. Like there was a course that came through the college program and the college program said, hey, do you want to take this web development course? I turned it down saying that it's only for geniuses. That's what I told my counselor. So who would have knew two months later, I'm reading this article and now I get this burst of inspiration to learn how to code. I ran down to the computer lab. It was too late to enroll into the course. It was already almost halfway through. But I found me a book on JavaScript, on coding. And that's when I started learning. I took that back to the cell and I started teaching myself how to code. From a book? Yeah, from a book. <laughs> I read it for about two weeks. And then finally, I got enough guts and courage to go sit on a computer and type in what I read in the books and just like try it out. I did that for like nine months straight and I got really good. I feel like I hit a plateau. And finally, like I saw this guy who was an older guy, maybe 15 years older than me. He was also incarcerated. He was a coder. I had got wind of, hey, he codes and that's what he's doing on a computer all day. I didn't know what he was doing on a computer. I thought he was just one of our college students writing a paper. So I want to ask him just to see what he was doing. And I saw how good he really was just peeking over his shoulder. He was a genius, genius. Like he was really tapping into like some higher level coding. So I asked him if he can teach me mentor me. And immediately he said, yes, no problem. His only stipulation was like, just pay it for anything I teach you. 
when other people have questions around a prison, I might send them some your way. You should help them out as well. I did. That was good, too. I started off teaching myself, but I found a mentor. And for the next two or three years in prison, I just studied, studied, studied. And I was able to build out PhotoPatch. The reason why I built PhotoPatch was because reading those articles about tech, they said that the biggest apps are the ones that solve a problem. So I started looking at my own life and was like, what problem do I want to solve? For me, it was really easy. I was like, I wish I could get more letters from my family, more letters from my daughter. I know people want to send these letters, but just the normal hustle and bustle of being in the world, working, going to school, putting kids to bed, driving, whatever it may be, it's hard to sit down, write a letter, get pictures printed, go to a post office, get stamps, mail everything off. It's a whole hassle, especially for my loved ones. I know how it is living in Buffalo, working two jobs and going to school. So I never was bitter about not getting a lot of mail. I more so was trying to think of a better way to make it happen. And there's no email in prison, right? Or at least not in certain prisons. Some maybe, but there's really no email access or access to the outside world. Right. Federal prison has email access. And now more and more state prisons are getting them every year. It's a slow progression, whereas 2020, (laughs) people still can't access each other digitally in some prisons. But that's what I wanted to do was to create like this fake digital connection, kind of like it feels like it's digitally happening. I heard about people sending texting more or using Facebook or MySpace. I did get a wind of uh, MySpace. So I was like, okay, people like to communicate that way, send messages online or do it from their phone. So how can I make communicating with your loved one in prison feel like it's just like a Facebook message or something like that? Yeah, I just I had this vision of a kid being able to use their phone, type a letter, attach some photos, press send. And even though they think it's going to get sent to the prison, it's actually going to come to our servers. We'll print it all out. We'll package it and we'll ship it to the prisons for them. That way they don't have to think about the stamps. They don't have to think about envelopes. They don't have to think about going to the post office. They can just write the message, attach the photos, relive that experience, share that experience with their loved one. Did you have to work within the prison system to get approvals and things like that? Like, How did that work? Yeah, I knew that would be a big leap because the prison's They're like capitalistic, just to be honest. So you have to sell something to make a partnership with the prison. Autopatch, my whole vision was, there's no way I'm going to charge a kid to send letters and photos to their mom or dad in prison. So I wanted the service to be free. Providing free services makes it hard to partner with the prison because they want to take a fee, a cut out of it or something like that. So my vision was, how do we not even let the prison know what's happening here? So when we do ship out these physical letters and pictures, it looks like it came from the loved one. So when a kid or the parent types into the app, they put their address, their return address, and also the address they want to send the letter to. So when we print it out, we put the return address of the kid or the mom or dad who's on the outside and then address it to the person who's on the inside. No signature, photo patch, nothing. So it looks like it just came directly from the loved one. That's cool because so then there's really no excuse in that I can just go on my computer. I have an account with photo patch. I can upload photos. I can write what I want to write. I hit send and you set it and forget it. And then you guys take care of the rest. So I don't have to go to the post office. I don't have to put stuff. In. That's pretty cool. That's pretty amazing. And the turnaround's probably pretty quick. As soon as you get it, you turn it around in a day or so. Right. Exactly. Yeah. They get a physical letter and somebody in prison who receives that letter, they don't get a chance to use PhotoPatch yet, but they can physically write the letter back. And that's how communication works. The kid on the outside will get a physical letter from their mom or dad in prison. The mom or dad in prison also will get 
the physical letter, even though it came from us, printed out. How did you get the word out originally? I mean, that's obviously the hardest part. It's a unique marketing challenge, if I can call it that, because it's not like your standard, typical kind of demographic that you market to. So how do you get the word out? How'd you do that? Yeah, we had to be creative. My first idea was just to go where the impact is at. So who's impacted by incarceration or who's impacting incarceration and go there. So on one hand, we wouldn't even talk to police officers and was districts and say, hey, put up flyers. When people come here to try to bail out family members or visit a family member, they should know about the service. And then on the other hand, we went to the communities and we went to centers for where at-risk youth are at. So a lot of kids who go to Boys and Girls Clubs or Big Brothers, Big Sisters, we went and partnered with those organizations. They always say, yes, I have a significant amount of kids who have a mom or dad who's incarcerated. So building those partnerships was key because we went right to where the impact is at. And then, of course, social media is just like a really powerful tool. A lot of people are impacted more than we think, even though there's 2 million people currently incarcerated, 2.7 million kids impacted by incarceration. There's still like so many more people who are impacted, whether it's brothers, cousins, sisters, nieces, nephews. So just talking about it naturally is viral and easy to share. But honestly, once we brought JJ into the fold and JJ started telling her story, that's when things really went viral. So what is JJ's role with the Photo Patch Foundation? Yeah, so JJ is officially the junior executive director of Photo Patch <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yes, she, it sounds she like she's the role. executive director, to be honest with you. You're just the founder. <laughs> yeah, I, run, I have run everything through her, and she pretty much has the last say-so. She's told me one day at a meeting with other volunteers there that her vision, we went around a circle about what we wanted our vision to be in five years, and Hers was for her to be in my seat and to be running Photo Patch. So we have big plans. <laughs> <laughs> but what is that vision? All kidding aside, I mean, I know she's going to be in charge officially, but what is the future vision for Photo Patch Foundation? JJ, first of all, I taught her out of cold when she was nine or 10 years old, as soon as I came home from prison. So she got a really early start. I didn't start learning how to cold till I was 24, 25. So just imagine where she'll be in 10 years. I can't really fathom that myself. So I don't know where it's going to be then, just because of what she's done already. She built her first app at 12, and she took 30,000 kids and letters and photos to her mom or dad in prison. But now, like, she's getting deeper into coding. She's getting better. And already we're talking about virtual reality and how that can impact prisons and visitation. Because even look right now, COVID-19 has totally stopped visits. And went from like these really strict visits to like no visits at all. So just like what we've been talking about, JJ and my team, Greg and Zach and Craig, we talk about how virtual reality, we put these goggles on. A kid can have goggles on outside of prison. A prisoner can have goggles on and they can be in the same space. They can hear each other. They can see the same scenery and maybe have avatars, but it feels more connected, has some kind of some kind of in-person feel. So we want to bring more technology to prisons for free because phone calls are getting more and more expensive. Visitations either aren't happening or they're very difficult because families have to travel 100, 200, 300 miles to make it to the prison. And it's impossible to do on a regular basis. Families just can't afford it. That virtual reality concept is really interesting. There's so many benefits to it, including the ones that you mentioned, but also just from an overall cost from a safety standpoint, right? From a comfort standpoint, 
you're basically breaking down so many barriers that currently exist, especially now with COVID. And just on the COVID thing, what is your perspective on early release because of COVID? And I do think it's an underreported issue in prisons right now. I mean, the media jump on a lot of things. Unfortunately, they're not jumping on the fact that I'm sure that it's rampant in prisons and no one's talking about it. Yeah. Everybody being in like these close quarters, the prisons are already overcrowded, just like tubal sanitation. They're so dirty. There's no real, it's not being updated, just like paint peeling or still getting rotted and rusting. It's just not a sanitized place in general. So when you talk about a virus going around, officers who are um, correctional officers going in and out every day, no telling what they're going to do, but then they come in and then they got to touch and search people. Like who's overlooking that? Who's testing the officers on a regular basis? I don't know. Like you said, more people need to be talking about it. I think there's already some people who should have been released from prison. Of course, everybody doesn't qualify for early release, but there are a lot of people who already like should have been released and are being held back because of like bad parole board decisions or maybe parole board decision got delayed because of COVID. Like you said, there's nobody talking about it, but at the same time, people are dying. I've read about three or four articles about people who have died from COVID already. And I, I know there's probably 10 times more than that, but just those few I read were hard to even read. Like, wow, that's how you had to die in prison. And it's like, that's not what they're being sentenced to, whether they did a crime or not. Yes, I got charged for criminal possession of a weapon, but does that mean I need to die in a prison? People carry weapons every single day and they have a license for it, yes, but a license does not separate who dies and who lives. This is not an area I know anything about, but it feels to me like eight years is a really long time for a criminal possession of a weapon. Oh, yeah. New York. That's a long time. I get one or two years, maybe, right? But eight is a long time. New York State has a minimum three and a half for a gun charge. And the max is 15 years. So they can choose any number between three and a half and 15 years for a gun charge. Did you have a public defender? Were you able to afford your own attorney? No, I had one. I put like $800 towards it. That's what I was able to get. But then I ended up switching him out. Well, he ended up saying, hey, this case, I would rather switch it to somebody I know. They'll do better with it. So yeah, it definitely was like a money issue as well. (laughs) And when you're 20, we talked about it at the the start of the show. It's like, you don't know anything when you're 20. (laughs) I mean, at almost 50, I don't think I know a whole lot. Right. (laughs) You don't know how to think in the same critical ways. You don't have the benefit of those years of experience, the questions to ask. So you got to rely on people around you and you just don't know. It's a crapshoot. Yeah. Yeah. Learned a lot along the way. I learned so much about the law and the prison system while I was going through it. Like, where else was I going to learn about that at? I mean, I could have. I could have been proactive and I should be right now teaching my son about the prison system, right? And about laws. I think it's necessary now in these days. But like you said, I didn't have that, right? I didn't have that kind of guidance to say, hey, be careful. You can get three and a half to 15 years in prison for having a gun charge. Like you said, I would have thought it was like, maybe you get a year, you get two years. I knew that that risk would probably be worth it. But yeah, I lived, learned, had to burn from it. You've been home five years now? Yeah, about five years. Okay. And you've got a little boy too, it sounds like. And a daughter. So I got a 15-year-old, a nine-year-old, and a two-year-old. Oh, nice. The two-year-old's a daughter? Yeah, she's a little girl, Nova. Oh, that's so sweet. That's awesome. This sounds funny when I say it. If I look back in my life, I think that my greatest accomplishments 
honestly are my kids. There's nothing greater than bringing another life into the world. Look, I love my wife and she listens to this podcast, so I'm required to say that. We've been married 22 years, but there's nothing more fulfilling and magical and moving than having children. It's just amazing. Yeah, yeah. Seriously. <laughs> I agree. I totally agree. It's like, and it's terrifying too. It's scary, but it's also awesome. Yeah. 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 I did a home birth for Nova and yeah. See my life flash before my eyes for a second. Well, you didn't do the home birth. Your partner did the home birth. Let's just be clear. She did it. Right. Yeah. You're a support. I just got scratched squeezed. I just dealt with that. That was Yeah. yeah. You're just directing and you're a support. Yeah. <laughs> so looking at your background, I see a lot of post-it notes on the wall. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. No, it's okay. It's funny. So I do the same thing and my kids give me grief because even though we live in this digital world, sometimes I need to see shit in front of me. I need to write it down and see it to remind myself. So there's got to be some sort of like mad genius shit going on back there, right? There's something going on back there. <laughs> it's a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm creating a new mobile app for Unlock Academy. I'm planning courses. So yeah, I don't, I didn't talk about it much, but I have an online school. So a lot of that actually is for our online school. We teach people how to code and how to design, how to freelance, how to make money off of coding skills, how to get a career, soft skills of being a programmer and like landing interviews and crushing interviews. So I'm always like, I have a really awesome team. So last week we just did a whole session where we just got all our ideas out and planned out the next four or five months for 2020. And it's called Unlock Academy? Yeah, the Unlock Academy. Yes. The Unlock Academy? That's cool. I love that name. Is it launched yet? Yes. Yeah. We launched January 1st, 2019, officially. We did a pilot in 2018, like November 18th, just to see. I just want to see if people wanted to know how to code. So I posted something to say, hey, I'm going to do a four-week boot camp where I just going to every week, I'm going to do a live video and teach you how to code. And I did it for four weeks in a row, and we got 15,000 people sign up. You're like the Khan Academy for coding, basically. Yeah, yeah. So at Khan Academy, it's really it's popular, it's cool. But yeah, we bring that coding twist to it. But also just I bring a lot of support. So there's other platforms where you can go and you can learn how to code and take these lessons. But we wanted it to be like also you have to learn how to code. You need somebody there with you. So we hold our students' hands. We have tutoring every night. We have a tribe of coders that talk to each other in a big group chat but it's really organized. So we have different channels for, let's say, HTML, if you're building websites, Python, if you're learning artificial intelligence. So it's like everything is organized, but still like supported and you feel the unity. So even though it's an online academy, everything happens online. There still is like this digital family that we wanted to create. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So last question. So we were introduced to you through Cheryl Dorsey at Echoing Green. She's awesome. She was on the show oh gosh, like a month ago or something. Incredibly inspirational. I think I could have spoken to her for, in fact, I think I want to have her back Incredible. on just to keep yeah. talking to her. You're not even 30 yet, right? I am. I'm 30. I just hit that mark. Just hit that mark. Okay. All right. So you're still, you just hit 30. Congratulations. Thank by you. The way. But for someone who just hit 30, you've lived the life of someone who's way older. You've seen so much and you've overcome a lot and you found choices from within and motivation that a lot of people don't really have the energy or the strength to be able to pursue. And it's incredible. So you've been home now five years, you just hit 30, created this amazing foundation. You've got three beautiful children. You're working on all sorts of stuff. You are like the Uber entrepreneur. I could tell just come to the post-it notes and just kind of engaging with you. And then the past couple of months, not just COVID, 
COVID for sure, but also with the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement following the death of George Floyd and countless others. How are you feeling? How are you processing all that? And what advice do you have for everybody else when it comes to issues of systemic racism, social justice, these inequities? Because I think that you have a different viewpoint. I'm going to guess you do because you had different life experiences. With everything going on in the world right now, I've been enraged. It's been a wild 2020. It's like the yin and yang. Like I've had a beautiful year business-wise and family-wise. My family has grown so much. It's been awesome. But then to look out and see my wider family, the Black community, and the pain that they're in, the pain that some of these families are in, I feel that. I soak in it. I feel it. Make sure I do. So that way I do what I do best, which is I turn pain into purpose. So I'm always trying to figure out what can I do? How can I help out? And I have to, right? I have to be a survivor because I have kids, like you said. So I can't let my kids see me down and just like angry all day. Instead, it's like, what are we doing to change things? So literally we're innovating, coming up with new products. We've been giving back. We've been doing free webinars, educating people on not only coding and tech, but also just on like history, on knowledge of self, on meditation, on yoga, on how to stay strong during these times on law and like what people can do opposed to just like being upset, putting things on social media. What can you do to make differences? So we partnered up with an organization by the name of Until Freedom. They're doing a lot on the front lines fighting for the justice for Breonna Taylor, who was murdered by cops in Louisville, Kentucky. Partnering with them has been great because it's like our way to be a part of that movement, like, but from a distance. So we're like their tech team. We're helping them actually serve people and serve information get people trained. We maintain our website, but also we support them, right? And donate to them and make sure that what we call invest. They always say, don't donate to us, invest into us because those people who are out there fighting and making phone calls every single day to the DA, to the senators, to the police chiefs saying, give us justice. It's like those people are most important. So I think investing into the people who are on the front lines has been what's helped me stay sane, stay positive, stay optimistic, because I look at them and I see like the strength and their perseverance to make change. And I know as long as I help them, they're going to make this all better, make this a better world for us to live in. So I feel like I'm just playing my role. Sometimes I know we can get stuck and say, what can I do? I think at the minimum, the thing we can do is help the people who are making a difference. There are people out here who are doing something to make a change. So just trying to align with those people is like a great goal. Being a part of Echo and Green, being a, a fellow, it's great because there are so many organizations who are part of Echo and Green who are helping out. So being able to take phone calls and offer support or donate once again, it feels good. It feels fulfilling because people are on the front lines. Yes, I have three other organizations and companies and three kids I have to run, but I still find a way throughout my days and weeks to help out with what's going on with the Black community. Yeah. And I think Outside the Black community, it's on us to question more. I mean, I think about your story, and let's be honest, do you think that if I was brought up on weapons possession, that I would get eight years? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think so. I'm a white guy. I don't think so. I'm just saying. I think that we need to have those kinds of discussions because obviously there's a lot of different factors. There's biases of the systems, the judges, and who represents you. But like, I don't know. But these are the types of discussions we need to have. I would say like the odds are more in your favor than mine. That's what I would say. 
Yeah. But I also know just from being in prison, like I had a lot of white friends who were incarcerated, men who were in there for 20 or 30 years. And it just always made me wonder, just sometimes you don't even want to be that one white guy who gets hit with the book just because, just because like it's a numbers game at the end of the day. Just even with the prison system, like I feel like black people were kind of just picked. I feel like prison was going to happen either way. It's just that black people became, this is going to be the tool for mass incarceration. To fill up these prisons, we need a story. We need a victim. We need a narrative. Why not blame it on these people? It was going to be somebody. <laughs> and like you said earlier, there's a revenue machine behind these prisons. Oh, yes. Which is something a lot of people don't realize. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Your story is so inspirational. And I like what you just said, turning pain into purpose, because it's positive. There's so many of us who either pain ends up killing us or we do bad things with it. We act out and it becomes like a death spiral. But instead, your message is all about positivity. It's about being optimistic. It's about being hopeful and motivated and recognizing that you have a choice. It's a beautiful message. And I just so appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your story and being so vulnerable. And I wish you all the best in just kicking ass on all these different... I'm sure that when we talk a year from now, you're going to have like five other organizations or 10 other products that you've launched and started, and that whole wall will be filled with post-it notes. Yeah. By then, I'll figure out delegation. Yeah, I'll figure that part out. <laughs> That's the hardest part, by the way. When you're an entrepreneur and you've got creative genius like you do, you know, you want to do it all and you realize you can't be successful if you try and do it all yourself. You need teams, you know? Yeah, scale is important. Yeah, you need JJ. We all need JJ. Five more JJ. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. All the best. Thanks again. Yeah, you're welcome. Have a good one. You too. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quickkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of entrepreneurs and senior leaders who make it their brand's mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing team, including the voice you never hear, producer extraordinaire Lindsay Hand, and the always on point associate producer Katrina Walkley who touches every aspect of this podcast. Learn more about our show at brandonpurpose.com. Follow our Instagram at The Bop Podcast. And learn more about our host at aaronquicken.com. Mm-hmm.